0: Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 110th episode of the PJ Archive. It's a phone interview I did with the English musician Pete Best, who was the drummer of the Beatles for two years before they achieved global fame. On August 16th 1962, following the band's first recording session, Pete was sacked by their manager Brian Epstein – at the request of John Lennon, Paul McCartney and George Harrison and he was replaced by Ringo Starr. Pete subsequently joined and started many other bands. Indeed, this interview with the very likeable Pete in 2003 was to promote a major tour he was preparing to undertake as part of the Pete Best Band. Tell us about your upcoming tour then and tell us a little bit about it, what people could expect if they went along. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's approximately about a 40-day UK tour, which will take
1: in most of the major venues uh, across the country, uh, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, and there's four bands on the bill, the Mersey Beats, uh, Swingin' Blue Jeans, the foremost, and ourselves, the P-P-S band.
0: How much of each year is spent touring now for you? About eight months. Right, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: enough. it's all over the world. 95% of our work, Peter to be quite honest has been touring abroad um right. you know we toured america canada japan italy yeah. europe you know norway everything you know and, and you uh, still
0: enjoy it oh yeah
1: i mean well i wouldn't be doing it if i didn't would i fair enough you know it's uh, it's one of those it's uh, you know as long as you enjoy it you know uh, that's the main thing and with my own band especially i mean we we travel well together we play well together we socialize well together you know um, what
0: do you play what what music do you play
1: we normally when we're out by ourselves we do a t- you know two-hour concert, um and that ranges from music that uh people associated with myself it is the pete best band mm-hmm. um so it'll be the the covers which we did way back in the early days you know the out and out rockers stuff which i recorded you know in germany um, stuff i recorded with a decker uh, both with the beatles and uh, and you know and in my own right and, uh, of course, you know, just to uh, let people know that we're not averse to playing Beatle numbers, mm-hmm. uh, we do some <laughs> Beatle classics, you know, we throw them in. We have a lot of fun. It's a mixed set for everyone. And, of course, you know, we're also singer-songwriters in our own right, so we throw in a couple of originals as well, so there's a right-the-way across the board.
0: You know? What percentage of your audiences tend to be Beatles fans? It's across the board, Peter, to be quite honest. We were surprised. You've got,
1: I suppose you could turn around and say the hardcore Beatle fans, you know, um, yeah. then you've got the curiosity factor. Yeah. You know, who is this guy and what is this band? And then you've got people who are just there because
0: it's interested in the band and what it sounds like, and they've heard about it, and you know, know our music. Because you're the peak best band, are yeah. you and your drum kit always centre stage? Not always. No,
1: no. I mean, there's there's two drums, two drums as you'd say, honestly, not yeah, two yeah. drums. <laughs> it's something which transpired which you when I, when I went back into show business about 15 years ago. My younger brother was playing drums at that time, and he's you know done session work for, you know, had his own band, and, and he's, you know,
0: well-recognised in the trade as well. Have you uh, often been asked if Pete Best is your real name? Yeah, yeah, such a, couple, a cool of times,
1: name. couple of times, yeah. Um, but it really is, isn't it? Oh, yeah, without, definite, without yeah. definitely, you know, yeah. full yeah. moniker is Randolph Peter Best.
0: Randolph? Yeah, oh, wow. Randolph. Randolph, <laughs> yeah, you know, but... Uh, after you left the Beatles did you ever consider changing the name just so you can have a new identity as it were
1: no no I mean I wouldn't change the name to hide the identity it's a family name it's a family name that we're very proud of it's got heritage you know the best name in Liverpool and Merseyside was well known before I ever got involved with the Beatles you know so it's a name that I'm very proud to hang on to so uh, I wouldn't even dream of changing
0: it I know your mum used to run a club didn't she oh yeah
1: yeah. I mean unfortunately you know, Mona died that was my mother she did right back in 1988 but yes She did. Um, It was her idea, her conception. Uh, She opened a club in Liverpool in 1959 called the the Kasbah Coffee Club. And uh, this went on through a determination of foresight and her ideas. Uh, It went on to become the catalyst uh, for the Mersey Beat Sound. And she was very important in that particular aspect. And I think it's only now, uh, unfortunately, at the wrong time, but people are starting to give her credit. For the work and the input yeah. that he did. At, you know. Is uh, there still a Casbah there? Yes, there is, Peter. We've still got it. It's still in the, the basement of our house in Heymans Green, yes. in the old Victorian house. And uh, this year we will be opening up to the public. Um, really? We're putting it back on the tourist trail again. We've done a couple of things down here which have actually brought the house down as regards the 40th anniversary of the Casbah, which is in 1999. Uh, we had a book launch, e.g., Stroke Pete Best reunion concert. Last year over the the Matthew Street Festival weekend because it was the first time that we'd uh, played in the UK at the festival uh, and we broke, well, the organisers turned around and said that we uh, had pulled the biggest crowd that they'd had, you know, at the festival. Uh, So we're very proud of that one. Were you from a family of musicians, Pete? Not musicians. Um, It's funny. um, We've been involved in music, even though we haven't been directly involved as regards playing We've always been associated with it, Um, and as much as, you know, my mother, at a very early age, was touted to be a a big band singer because of her voice, Uh, but unfortunately her parents rejected that. They turned around and said, no, my girl, you're not doing that. But it still left her with a a flair for show business, and I think that came out when she actually opened the Casbar. and whatever was in her jeans has been transported into her son's jeans, and of course, you know, we've picked up from where she left off we've actually gone on stage and where she wasn't playing an instrument you know we're actually playing drums guitars whatever the case might so be so how
0: did you start drumming then uh, well it really it was through the
1: casbah and also through a guy called gene <laughs> Right. and uh, i'd basically seen uh, you know the old movies you know the big band movies yeah uh, you know glenn miller and all that and i'd watch Krupa on there And I just thought to myself, you know, what a a great style he had, you know, he was a powerhouse drummer, a lot of rhythm, you know, a lot of Tom Tom work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, when live music actually came to the coffee club, you know, my mother's club, the Casbah, Mm -hmm. because... Every major band in Liverpool, as well as audition bands, played at the cast bar. So mm-hmm. I had a, a front row seat, didn't I? You know, to the likes of the Quarrymen, who later became the Beatles. Yeah, they yeah. opened the club uh, the 29th of August, 1959. They went on to become the Beatles. Yeah. I joined them, because the other bands that were playing there were Jerry and the Pacemakers, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, the mm-hmm. Big Three.
0: So it was a shop window for all this latent talent that was around in Liverpool. Did you ever consider another career at all? Or was it always going to be drumming for you? It was initially when I, I was at school. Uh, before, I suppose, you could turn around and say, I got the drumming bug and couldn't put
1: sticks down. I was always, you know, knocking my hands on, you know, tables and bashing out rhythms and all the other bits and pieces. Right. And then, of course, when, you know, I was asked to form a band and join a band, it was like, you know, it seemed the natural thing to do. No, I'd never really thought
0: about it. So um, when were you first asked to join a band? At what age? Sixteen. Basically, I had a part of a small skiffle group, which was at school, for a little while mm-hmm. okay
1: and it was the two lads from that with ken brown uh, chas Newby and bill barlow uh when ken turned around and said let's form our own band and you know the blackjacks that was when i touted them to come into it because i'd been involved with them before but i suppose you could turn around and say well i was at school uh, before i got the show business book i was looking more towards the uh, being a language master Oh, you know, that's the way my uh, my sights were set. Yeah.
0: When um, Paul McCartney asked you to join the Beatles, yeah. why was that a better offer than remaining with the Blackjacks?
1: It wasn't a better offer. I mean, it was something I just didn't turn around and say, "Yeah, I'm going." The Blackjacks had had their own reputation. We were a fun band. You know, we weren't professional. Uh, you know, we were very <laughs> uh, well. Suppose you could turn around and say, amateur in a way, semi-amateur, stroke, semi-professional. We were doing the usual things. We played the Casbah. We had our following there. We'd done done weddings and done a couple of clubs, you know, so, you know, people knew about us and we we were proud of what we could do. When Paul asked me, it was a different thing because it was actually going away from home, you know, it was actually playing six, seven nights a week on a regular basis at a club in Hamburg. Now, of course, when the offer came from Paul, um, I basically turned around and said, okay, you know, let me check it out with my own boys first. Mm-hmm. You know, it was gratis for them and, it, you know, it seemed a natural thing to do because they were friends. As well as you know, fellow band members. And when I went back and talked it over with them, and they just basically turned around and said, "No, Peter, if it's what you want to do, then then do it. Don't think about us because we've got no aspirations to be professional musicians. We're career people." They were going on to become, uh, you know, chemists and you know, mathematicians and all the other bits and pieces. They were clever guys. And so I cleared it with them. Then you go back and you clear it with your parents. Mm. You know, um, <laughs> well you did in those days anyway. Yeah. And they turned around and said, well, if it's what you want to do, something go with our blessings. I went back to Paul and said, you know, okay, right. I'm in for it.
0: <laughs> John Lennon once said that he felt the Beatles were at their best in those early days in Germany. What's your opinion? I'd agree with him 100%. Yeah, um, I think that the the music uh, and people who actually saw us in Germany,
1: you know, saw the Beatles. Um, they saw the, you know, the... The, the real The, the real yeah. Beatles, you know, not what went on to record. It was a sound which was captivated people. Most know.
0: people probably assumed those were the best years of your life, were they?
1: I've always looked back on them, Peter, with fond affection. You know, they were, it was a great learning curve for me. You know, I was with, what went on to become the greatest band ever. It was To me, it was the greatest band ever, even in those days. Yeah. Apart from my own band now, of course.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> did you feel that, that, that they were special, that they were destined for greatness? Yes, uh, to be totally honest, yes. I mean, the first time I actually
1: watched them in the Casbah the pizza, which was on the opening night, I think, as I mentioned before, uh, and there was no drummer with them then. It was just the, the John George Paul lineup, and of course Ken Brown. And uh, that's been well chronicled, anyway. But um, yes, I stood in the audience, and, and I watched. I watched the banter. I watched the uh, the musicianship. Even though that, you know, grew and grew all the time. Um, but there was something there. The harmonies, the way that they actually handled themselves, the vocal range of Paul McCartney and John Lennon. It was, you know, there was something there. Which he stood in the audience, and he went, ah. There's something special about these. Really?
0: Yeah. When you went to work with them, yeah. which of them did you get on with most and least? I don't think you could turn around and say least.
1: Okay. Um, I mean, because we all socialized together. We all basically got involved in all the, the mayhem which went on over there, you know, together. You know, it wasn't a case of like a pecking order. I think I was closest to John. Right. You know, simply because of the fact that you know John and I were you know mates. You know, we teamed up together in Germany. We were the ones who were always up late drinking. We were the last ones to go to bed. Uh, sure. You know, and of course when we came back to Liverpool, he was always down at my house. He was always at the Casbar sleeping mm. over. You That's know, up at the Upper
0: What was uh, Stuart Sutcliffe like?
1: Stuart was a wonderful guy. He was a brilliant artist. Um, I think the world is recognising that now with it, you know the exhibitions. As regards a musician, uh, I hate the thought and I hate what people turn around and say about him in as much as that, you know, he was a bad musician. He couldn't play the bass. Uh, Stu wasn't as good a bass player as other people, mm. but he gave 200% on stage and what he did was good enough for the Beatles for many, many years.
0: How many Beatles recordings did you play on?
1: All of the ones we did in Germany, all of the the uh, Decker auditions, and that's about it, really. And do you still have them? I've got the Decker auditions in many, many formats. <laughs> People have given it to me. And, of course, the German stuff, yes. Everything that we did by ourselves, i with Tony Sheridan.
0: And I know it's a bit of a personal question, but to what extent have the royalties taken care of you ever since?
1: It's something I've never planned on, Peter, to be quite honest. I haven't, you know, sort of turned around and said, oh, you know, I don't need them. Um, it's, it's been the icing on the cake, in a way. But I was fortunate, you know, that I'd worked for many, many years to make sure that my family had security and, yeah. you know... Uh, they were looked after, and um, I was quite proud of whatever you know I had achieved for them.
0: So they have taken care of you, the royalties. So they have in a way. Yes, right, yes, yeah. yes, yes. yes you know. I mean, what I'm confused about is every photograph I've ever seen of you, mm. even back then, you're never smiling. <laughs> and yet I talked to you, now, and you're such a cheery, nice fellow. Why, why were you never smiling in any of the pictures?
1: Oh my goodness me! Um, why was I never smiling? Okay, I'm not a, I'm not a. Uh, how can I turn around and put it? uh showy drummer glitzy drummer right um in those days you know we weren't cranked up we weren't through a mixing board or anything like that um i had a job to do i had a powerhouse sound um which was the driving force behind the beatles and it took a lot of energy and a lot of concentration you know so you know if they were involved in smiling at the floozies on the front row i had a job to do i was the engine room right so i was concentrating and on making sure that the sound. You know, was out there for the people to enjoy themselves, and that's what you know they would remember about the Beatles.
0: Mm. See, in the anthology, McCartney says that on Merseyside you were known as mean, moody, and magnificent. (laughs) How aware were you of that, and to what extent did you cultivate that image?
1: I didn't cultivate it, it was something which was given the tag was given to me by Bob Wooler, who wrote an article. Bob Wooler, you know, know the Captain DJ. And he wrote an article about the Beatles um, and the physical attributes of the Beatles. And Then Eddie singled me out and he gave me the tag Mean, Moody and Magnificent uh, at Teenage Jeff Chandler. And that particular, you know, it wasn't through cultivation. It was something he came up with. You know, it was a woolerism if you could put it that way. Mm. But it stayed with me ever since.
0: In the book The Beatles Diaries, it says that when the Beatles had their famous haircuts, you refused to have one. No, no,
1: no. That's rubbish. That's absolute rubbish, that Peter. At that time, I mean, okay, Stu was the first to come with the Beatles haircut, then George followed suit, and then many, many months afterwards, John and Paul, you know, went off to Paris, and lo and behold, they came back with what later became the Beatles hairstyle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, at that stage, no one had, you know, you've got to remember, I'd gone into ladders, I'd done exactly what everyone had done, cowboy boots, grown the hair long, et etc., et, et cetera, If anyone had come up to me at that stage and turned and said, look, Pete, we're trying to create a slightly different Hairstyle. You know, we've gone away from the, the Tony Curtis and the Elvis Presleys and the DAs and the sweatbacks. Um, we're going for, you know, I suppose you could turn around and say, the, you know, the Astrid case you cut. I'd have followed suit. You know, it was a case of, OK, if that's what you want me to do, I'll have a crack at it.
0: But McCartney has been quoted as saying that you never quite fitted in with the rest of them. To what extent did you feel that?
1: I didn't feel it at the time. I mean, I mean everyone, um, you know, if you're with them for two years, if it had been with them for two months, so they'd most probably turned around and said, yeah, there's, you know, there's, a, there's mm. a reason for it. But if you're with them for two years, um, it takes an awful long time to find out that you don't, don't actually part of them, you don't fit in. Mm. And there was no, no mention at all, you know, that anyone felt like that. I mean, mm. you know, I was knocking around with John, you know, we were friends, we were socialising together, you know, we'd go out and drink together, we were playing together basically, you know, every night of the week uh, we were seeing one another, we were, you know, drinking in the grapes together. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you but, know, you wouldn't all think the, about
0: it. All of the Beatles, George Martin and Brian Epstein, all talked about why they decided to get another drummer. Mm. So why on your website does it say that your dismissal from the Beatles remains clouded in mystery?
1: Well, it does because there's a lot of things which don't add up. You know, no reasons for it. I can't give a specific reason for it. Some of the stuff which has actually been mentioned by George Martin and Brian Epstein really doesn't hold up water. You know, it, it was a case of, in, in certain aspects, you got George Martin who turned around and said, I didn't know that piece had been uh, changed, mm. right? Mm. Um, and the new drummer came along. And the same thing happened. You know, he still ended up using Andy White. Mm. So why was it a case? Why, you know, if that was the situation, you know, why did I have to go? Brian's basically turned around and said, you know, it was... It was something which was kept from me, Mm. so, you know, there's been different theories, you know, there's other people who turned around and said, oh, you know, it wasn't a good enough drummer, there was different attributes, so, I suppose, you know, rather than go into details and, you know, assumptions and allegations like everyone Mm. else does, we've left it on the website to say yes to us, it's still, you know, a grey area, you know, there's no specific Mm. confirmation of that.
0: Legend has it that in response to your sacking, one of your fans head-butted George Harrison. Did you ever find out who it was?
1: I do know who it was, actually, yeah. Um, but I'm going to retain his anonymity.
0: <laughs> I had
1: nothing to do with it, Peter. <laughs> He's still
0: a mate of yours. Isn't
1: he? I haven't seen him for, oh, my goodness, my 40-odd years. How yeah, funny. Yeah.
0: But I must ask you, how did you find out who it was? Did the guy come up to you and say, by the way, Pete, it was me that...
1: No, I, I, there's a grapevine in Liverpool. OK, and I, I'll just put it that way. I heard through the grapevine.
0: Right. <laughs> and was he ever a friend of yours, this guy, or...?
1: He used to knock around, yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was a fan. But, uh, you know, I don't think it was so much he nutted him. Was it a, threw a punch or something? Whatever it was, I know George ended up with a black eye. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
0: And uh, was he always known as a bit of a hard man, this guy, then? No, not really. You know, I, I mean, you know, sting, I mean
1: I'd never seen him going into brawls and, you know, kicking the hell out of people. He was, you know, he was a typical Liverpoolian. Is it yeah. right
0: that there was a bit of a protest in Matthew Street when you... Oh, I believe
1: matter. so, yeah, I wasn't there, but, um, you know, the girls were out there with the, the banners and the hoardings, you know, Pete Forever, and "Go Never, and uh, it was great, I heard about it, it was it was very heartwarming, you know, again, it was very flattering, and to think that, you know, the fans supported you that much.
0: Have you got any of those banners? Do they still exist? I haven't got any, no, I wish yeah. I did. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What's been your most bizarre encounter with a Beatles fan? Bizarre encounter with a Beatles fan? In
1: Italy we were invited into a a hotel that we were staying at Mm -hmm. and the owner of the hotel turned around and said I'd like you to come down and you know see where we practice and all the other bits and pieces we said yeah okay and we went down I was with my own boys and when we actually went into the room it was a Pete Best shrine
0: really? yeah
1: and it was like oh you know um Number one, yes, I am scared now. And number two, how the hell do
0: I get out of here? <laughs> And
1: how did you get out of there? As quick as I could out the door.
0: Yeah. <laughs> how successful did you feel the Beatles would go on to be? Not the phenomena, Funny enough. I knew that they were going to be big. Uh, that was the inner belief,
1: arrogance that you know the lads from Liverpool had in those days. And that we had because, you know, we were top dogs. Um, I knew that they'd get a record in the charts. I knew that they'd get number ones. But I never... Ever thought that they'd become the phenomena? Did your Um, pods
0: ever cross again?
1: We played on the same stage, uh, the same bill, a couple of times afterwards. I joined a band called Lee Curtis and the All Stars. Yeah, yeah.
0: What was said to you then? Did they ever talk to you then?
1: No, funnily enough. The first time I played with them, uh, or played on the same bill as them, was at the Cavern. And we were support bill to the Beatles, and uh, they came on after us. So as we were going off stage, they were coming on stage, but there was no communications. Did you ever you know, forgive
0: them for sacking you? I've never held it against them. Mm.
1: A lot of people have always turned around and said, you know, you, you must have ended up a very bitter and very, you know, acidic person, and it mm. was something... Um, yes, it did hurt at the time, you know, but my goodness mm. me, you, there's somewhere along the line you've got to turn down and go... That's history. You know, mm. you got your life to lead, and it's one of those things.
0: But you did turn down Rory Storm and the Hurricanes and the Mersey Beats when when Epstein offered them to you. Was that sort of revenge for saying, you
1: know? No, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes was simply the fact. You know, I need time to clear my head. You know it mm. was like you know it's not a one-for-one one. ringo joins the beatles and you know peaches jumps into ringo's place with rory storm and the hurricanes when i met rory afterwards i explained it to him you know and he appreciated mm. the fact he said pete he said your head must have been up your backside <laughs> you know so getting off is a work <laughs> with epstein uh it was a slightly different case peter to be quite honest he wanted to work the same stable but as i explained to, to brian it was very much a case when you've been number one with the number one band in the stable you know, to basically start off again and take a young band, even though they were a very, very good band. And as mm. Brian turned around and said, turn them into another Beatles. Mm. It meant going through a lot, of, a lot of hard work and staying in the same stable. At that time, because of the circumstances and because of, you know, what, what had happened, it didn't seem the right thing to do. You know, I felt that there had to be a clean break if I was going to join another band.
0: What was it like to see people you'd worked with and played with gain legendary, iconic status? I suppose
1: I've never looked at it that way, you know. I mean, they're the icons, yes. You know, the the legends, the the, the phenomena that you know, the household names the been knighted, the you know, world leaders, um, you know, everything else which goes with it. But to me, I, I suppose because I've been with them, I played with them for two years, knew them for three. They're still, you know, John, George, and Paul, and the same with the other guys who have played with them in the music business. You know, have gone on to be legendary yeah. in their own right. To me, they're just there. Uh, you know, normal guys, you know. But did have, you
0: remain in contact or on friendly terms with any of them?
1: When you say any of them, you're talking specifically the about Beatles, the Beatles, yeah. Not so much in contact, um, simply because of the fact you've got to realise, I mean, when they actually went into the charts, um, and, and it's been well chronicled, so I'm not going to, you know, spend yeah. a lot of time about it, mm-hmm. they moved so fast. I mean, one mm-hmm. day they were, uh, you know, first record was number 17, the next one was in the charts, and lo and yeah. behold, after that, the phenomena had started, yeah, you know. A, yeah. So when that happened, and the fact that, the, you know, the NEMS empire was being created, um, which later went on to be Apple, the structure was there. I mean, to try and pick up the phone and turn around and say, OK, how are you doing, guys? Hmm. Um, it was impossible. Do you, you find
0: it quite significant that you packed in playing for 20 years at the time then they were starting to fall apart as well? Do you feel there's any significance there?
1: No, it was something I, you know, that was... Like the rest of the world, I think when I read that they'd broken up, um, it was like, that's strange. You know, I thought, my goodness me, even if they, you know, they never toured, they'd still record. You know, they still bang the music out. Um, Were you fed up
0: with people associating you with them by that stage? Do you think, I want to get out of this business and fed up with everyone going on about the Beatles or whatever?
1: No, I think, you know, even... Many, many years afterwards, you know, the people still associate me with them. It's a natural natural hope for people to hang their cap on. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it goes with the territory, your parts of it, people still allude to you. You know, even though now, you know, I and myself and the band are starting to get recognition in our own right, which is great. But you'll always have that association with them. I don't mind. Mm. You know, it, it's one of those things. It's like, you know, if people want to associate me with it, then fine. You know, well, it's What not. did you
0: do during your 20 years off? What did I do? Yeah,
1: work my bollocks off. <laughs> but,
0: but no, I you'd no, it
1: I, no. It really. Um, I joined the civil service. I went through the normal, you know, promotional channels because it, I'd made the, the conscious decision that I was finishing with show business, and I suppose to prove, you know, to people that I had turned over a completely new leaf, I had to, you know, bury myself in my work and had made the decision that I was going to support my family and take care of them. So it was very much a case of yeah. You know, you did work hard, you, you know, you strive for recognition within your own job, and you went through the promotional channels. Then I was fortunate, I ended up being, you know, training manager for the Northwest just before I actually finished.
0: Uh, and what can you tell us about your family that you gave it all up for, as it were?
1: My family is my life. It always was and it always will be. Um, at that stage, when I gave up show business, I had a, a beautiful wife Co and the first of my my two beautiful daughters uh who was biba b-e-b-a and uh, at that time it was very much a case yes they did you know they'd been with me uh kathy had never mentioned anything at all about you know you've got to finish with your business she's very supportive and always has been and always will be even today and it was a decision i made because financially things weren't working out well as i always turn around and said if i'd have been a single guy you haven't got the responsibilities but i was married i had a young daughter had a lovely wife that I had to look look after,
0: and you've got another daughter as well.
1: Bonita, uh, she was the second uh, nine grandchildren, four really? grandchildren. So yeah. yeah, you know it's uh, something to look forward to. Yes, we you know we work hard, we play hard, we travel the world. Um, you know we're away from home for quite some time, mm. but it's lovely coming back again.
0: And are your daughters in the business at all? No,
1: nope. they've not a conscious decision. I've never turned around and moved them away from it, or mm. turned around and said, "Oh, look what happened to me," blah blah blah. Mm. You know the usual usual sermon that people give it was like be your own choice
0: mm.
1: you know they love to dance they love to sing you know they they used to go clubbing before they had the children they still enjoy it you know whenever the time comes from to enjoy themselves or you know come out and, you know party they enjoy themselves mm. but no you know as regards going into the business from a you know a playing point of view it was just something which never whetted their
0: appetite To so yeah. what extent did you like the music the beatles went on to make i liked it because it was different Okay, um it it wasn't the Beatles to me.
1: Because I mentioned before, really? you know, yeah. I was one of the people who sort of turned around and said, No, the music we were playing in Hamburg and the sound that we had there was when we were at, you know, our peak. Mm. Um but listening to them, um, you know, there was, it was a different sound compared with, you know, what was happening in the music industry. And um even though it wasn't uh you know, they were writing their own material, it was a little bit softer, mm-hmm. a little bit sweeter. But it was the Beatles.
0: At the different times, have you, how upset have you been by the deaths of Stuart Sutcliffe, Brian Epstein, John Lennon, George Harrison?
1: Very much so. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you, you know, you've know, you worked with these people, you've had respect for them. Uh, Stu Sutcliffe was, you know, he was a guy which I knew from the Casbah. You know, he was a friend that played bass with him. He made the conscious decision to, you know, leave the band, go back to Hamburg College of Art. We were informed when we went over to open the Star Club that Stu died of a brain hemorrhage. Tragic, you know. Same with Brian Epstein, um, you know he was a young man. you don't expect people you know whether it was a you know, whether it was a suicide or whether it was a you know drug taking escapade which went drastically mm. wrong. I don't know, but the fact that yes, you have worked with the person you know, regardless of what happened, you've got your own mm. memories and your own feelings about them you and know, the same with George and mm. the same with John you
0: know? Like, maybe know if you sort of sent flowers or. Run their families up or whatever, or do you not get involved at all?
1: No, I don't get involved. The, you know, I pay my respects by basically wishing them well. Mm. And I, I, when I say wishing them well. I mean, don't mean that I know like what you, mean. you know, the rock the yeah. planet, that yeah. type of thing. It's like, yeah. I'll, you know, pay my respects in my mm. own own quiet way, and that's basically much, thinking about them.
0: Do you have much memorabilia from your Beatles days? Funnily enough, yes. And it was something which. With the help of my mother, because God
1: bless her, she was what we call over here, and, you know, the three brothers allude to her as, as a hoarder. She always was. So there's a lot of stuff, you know, which, which she kept, but there's also pieces which I'd kept, you know, leather jackets and contracts and all the other bits and pieces.
0: What's your most prized possession? From prized that, possession? From that point of view. I suppose my leather jacket. Right. Yeah. From yeah. the Hamburg days. From the
1: Hamburg days, yeah. Couldn't don't... get into it now, but it's the <laughs> prized possession. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
0: Have you ever written your autobiography?
1: I've done two, actually, Peter. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there was one which was done way back, my goodness me, around about 1985, I think. That was Beatle, uh, the Pete Best story, and that was written by myself and Patrick Doncaster. Then, uh, around about 95, um, I did The Best Years of the Beatles, which was myself and Bill Harry. And funnily enough, talking about books at the present moment, we had one, our third book, which was The The Beatles: The True Beginnings. Now, that was written by Rogue, and, uh, you know, the three brothers. And that's the story of Mona and the Casbah and all the intricate entwinings that involved with the Beatles and the other bands in, in Merseyside. You know, it's mm. their story. It's developing, you know, how the, the, the Casbah emerged, how it became the catalyst for the, you know, the Mersey Beat sound. And that was released last year.
0: To what extent have you read all the books and seen all the movies about the Beatles? No. I read some of the
1: books, you know, which I feel, you know, would be interesting. Um, the films, <laughs> yes, I've watched them. Um, I've seen them, you know, they're entertaining. And that's it. But I'm not one of these people like, well, I suppose you could turn around and say, you know, a Beatle manic, right. which is everything which is released about the Beatles, mm. every book format, bump, you know, you've got it and you've read it. What you know? did you
0: think of the 90s movie Backbeat? Good
1: entertainment. <laughs> I think the publicity was wrong. They billed it as the, the story of the, the Five Lads in Hamburg. Really, it was the story of. You know, a and Astrid, wasn't it? Mm. Um, we would just happened to be four bystanders who were there while this fantastic love story was going on. But the creditable thing about it, Peter, was I thought the soundtrack was very, very good. Yeah. They'd got the rawness, they'd captured the Savage, a little bit mm. of what we sounded like in those mm. days.
0: Have you ever been approached about making a film of your own life?
1: I have, actually, yes. There's talk and uh, discussions going on at the present moment, so uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get something ratified before the end of the year.
0: So who would you like to play you, then? Who is going to play you? Oh, God, I haven't even thought about it. I mean, let's see if
1: it's contracted up yet, and then we'll start thinking about it, you know.
0: A few years ago, McCartney's childhood home was opened by the National Trust, and and soon John Lennon's will be, too. Have you visited either of them?
1: McCartney's I have, yes, before it actually opened. Right. um, I was invited in by the, uh, I suppose you could turn around and say the caretaker now. you turn around and say, would you like to, you know have a private look around it before it actually opens to the public, and uh, I went with my two brothers and uh, had a look around it, and it was, yeah, okay, you know, but um, you you remember I'd been there a couple of times when, you know, Paul was there, so it was, you know, a little bit like stepping back into yesteryear.
0: Does it seem odd that their houses are open to the public now?
1: I suppose in hindsight, yes. You know, I mean, when you were kids with them, uh, even though they are the phenomena, You'd never think that, you, you, you know, their house or your own home, basically, you know, what's going to happen to the Caspar, right. would become open to the public. You know, it was just something which is, no, this is our house, this is where we have fun, this is where we have our dinners, you know, this is where we rehearse. You know, but you wouldn't think that, you know, many, many years afterwards, you know, the National Trust or British Heritage have done these houses up so that the world can come and visit them. It was something like...
0: So will you pay the fee to go around Lennon's house?
1: No, I would be invited in and have a look at
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> How would you feel about your own home being opened up one day?
1: Well, it, it, it's not so much the home. I mean, because above the Casbah, I mean, we still have the the Casbah in Haymans Green. Yeah, um, yeah. Now the offices, you know, Splash Promotions, which deal with the Casbah events and, you know, booking, you know, the band and representing myself and everything. The offices are actually in, in Haymans Green. Um, so we're utilising, you know, the old home for, you know, Office work, as well as you know, other things. But as regards the Casbah, yes, we are very proud of the fact that it will be open to the, to, you know, the uh, the public. Yes. Have you always lived in Liverpool? Apart from being born in India.
0: Oh, is uh, that right? I yeah, I that. was
1: born in India in uh, 1941 uh, during the war. Uh, mother and father were stationed out there.
0: Was your dad working on the railways there, or something? Or
1: no, uh, John was um, a, a PTI instructor, a physical training instructor, oh. and he trained the Gurkhas. You know, he had a Gurkha regiment, so he was out there. And um, my mother was, you know, uh, lived out in India. The family had emigrated out to India many, many years ago during the Raj. Uh, So she was working out there, training to be a doctor. And uh, they fell in love, and lo and behold, that's how, you know, I came along. Mm. But, um, yeah, I was born in India in 1941 and uh, came to Liverpool at the end of the the war. Well, the family, in fact, came to Liverpool. We landed in Liverpool Christmas Eve in 1945. And I've been in Liverpool ever since.
0: What can you tell us of your present home? Is it a huge one behind huge gates? Or no, don't be silly. I know. don't know. you're a successful guy.
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, you know. My my home is my home. I suppose you could turn around and say it's a townhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, do you get lots yeah. of
0: fans turning up? You do. Um, you know, but the I,
1: I suppose the beauty of it is they you know respect uh, my privacy. Right. you know, they'll do walk past and you know look at it and you know post a few things through the door and all the other bits and pieces but uh, mm-hmm. you know um, the, I've lived there for oh god how many years now you know 30 odd years so you know I'm Pete who lives on the street
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it's one of those uh, but the beauty of it is that um, I still you know retain my own identity I can still yeah. go into a pub and have a laugh and a joke with friends um, and people in the street know who I am but it's like very much you know you know, it's not Pete the, you know, the drummer or Pete who yeah. used to play with the Beatles. It's like, you know, Pete, the next door neighbour who I have a pint with.
0: Have you still got your moustache?
1: I have, yes. It's grey now, but I've still got it.
0: And are you keeping that? Is that something, is your trademark? I've never considered it, it as a trademark. I grew it and it stayed there, you know. How long have you had it now? Goodness me,
1: how long have I had it? When did moustaches come into fashion? <laughs> <laughs> when was that mid-60s? Uh, yeah, better since then,
0: yeah. Mm. What, what do you do away from music? What, uh, obviously, you spend time with your family, but mm. um, what sort of things do you like to do away from performing?
1: I'm a great rugby fan. I love watching uh, rugby. You know, mm. I used to play rugby for many, many years. So if there's, you know, rugby internationals or, you know, the Super League, I'm glued to the television or, you know, if I've got tickets, I'll actually go out and watch the game itself. You know, that's simply because of the fact I was involved in sports.
0: You know, I played rugby, you know, as a sportsman when I was younger and I still stayed with me. What tempted you back into performing again, 15 years ago? I'd been asked for many, many years to perform at a what was then a Beetle convention,
1: which has now gone on to become the Matchy Street Festival. And uh, the organisers of that had been, for many, many years, they turned around and said, Pete, you know, let people, let the you know the fans which come to Liverpool and the, the people in Liverpool see what you used to be doing, you know, um, and, and you know, get up and play, and I turned around and said no. Anyway, they gave me so much grief and pressure Peter um, that I finally (laughs) succumbed (laughs) and uh, I turned around and said okay I'll I'll do it under my own terms Mm. and uh, I just turned around and said we'll put a band together I'll pick the musicians and we'll just get up and play some good old rock and roll that was it good old rock and roll Mm. and um, at that time because you know still I'm great friends with Billy Kenzie from you know the Mersey Beats and Liverpool Mm -hmm. Express Mm -hmm. got in touch with him he turned around and said love to do it Kenny Parry used to be in Liverpool Express Dave Goldberg and uh there's myself and of course my younger brother, uh, yeah, Rogue, was okay. playing drums at that time. And I said it would be great because our mother was still alive then. And uh, to see, you know, their youngest son and her eldest son on stage at the same time playing drums. Mm. So I said, Yankee kids up on stage and, you know, we we'll play some rock and roll. Wow. And we did. And it went down that well. And as we came off stage, a lot of people came up, including my wife, and turned around and said, Pete, you don't know it are you going back into show business again? And I turned around and said, no, no. You know, it was a one-off. But lo and behold, uh, she was right and they were right because, you know, 15 years down the line I'm treading the boards again and loving every minute of it.
0: You still do Q&A sessions about your time with the Beatles. So why haven't you been interviewed for things like the Beatles Anthology?
1: That was something I wouldn't know the answer to, Peter.
0: You were never Uh, asked?
1: I was never asked. Um, A lot of people have turned around and said, you know, you know, you was an important part of them. You know, how come you didn't? uh, You weren't interviewed. You know, you had no input into it. And I suppose my answer to that was, in reality, it is their story. You know, um, there were lots of other people who weren't interviewed as well. But no, it's a valid question, and I don't have the reason. You know, the answer for it.
0: You've obviously been asked a lot of questions about them over the years. What do you think has been the most popular misconception about you?
1: Popular misconception that I don't smile (laughs) and I'm not a good drummer. Right, um, but as I turn around and say, you know, it's one of those uh, misconceptions which I can prove people wrong on because uh, if they see me, I'm quite a happy-go-lucky guy. Mm. You know, they'll get up on stage and hold my head up high and so still turn around and say, "Yeah, I can bash the skins along with uh, many, many other people."
0: Some of the things the other Beatles went on to say about you were not altogether flattering. Did it hurt you to hear some of those things?
1: It did. Yeah, to be truly honest, yes. There wasn't so much; it was the dismissal. It was the the innuendos which which happened afterwards, you know. Um, It was bad enough being part of it, but then to get slagged off Mm. further and further down the line, you know, wouldn't smile, anti-social, not a good enough drummer, you know, and and on and on, on you know, whichever was said. Yes, they did have because it was a little bit like rubbing salt in the wound. Mm.
0: How has it felt to know that no matter what you've done since the Beatles and no matter what you do in the future, people will always remember you as their former drummer?
1: I suppose in a way it's flattery. You know, it, whether they remember it in a, in a good vein or a bad vein, you know, that, that's up to the public. You know, you can't influence the public, they make their own decisions. But the fact that you're, you know, you're remembered for being part of something, to me is fine, you know, that's uh, it's flattery. How would you like people to remember you after you've gone? Oh, just as Pete. Um, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, Pete the family man, Pete who, you know, had a good band, was a, you know, good drummer, um, and Pete who enjoyed life. <laughs>